Emma Webb, Senior Manager of Education for the American College of Clinical Pharmacy, and this is the first of what we hope will be many editions of a new podcast episode called Clinical Queries. These Clinical Queries episodes are dedicated to answer questions that you have about a variety of different topics. This particular episode featured questions focused on anticoagulation and arrhythmias, and our expert panel includes James Coons from the University of Pittsburgh, Zach Stacy from St. Louis College of Pharmacy, and Jessica Tilton from the University of Illinois. And serving as our co-host for this episode is Craig Beavers from the University of Kentucky. We hope you enjoy this episode, and if you have questions that you would like answered on a future Clinical Queries episode of the ACCP podcast, please email your questions to podcast at accp.com. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Okay, so first question. I have a question about the appropriate loading dose schedule of amiodarone for AFib and VFib and VTAC. There's so many different ways to do so. Some people say as long as, a loading, as, long as total loading dose is 6 to 8 grams for AFib and 8 to 10 grams for VFib are achieved, loading schedule does not matter. I'd love to hear your expertise on these. Are these people correct? I personally, um, so I work in the, this is Jessica, and I work in the AMCARE side of things, so I don't see the inpatient so much. However, there are six different attendings that I work with, and they all load it quite differently. Um, they all, you know, kind of shoot for the 10 grams, regardless of AFib or VT, um, and they may start with initiation of um, an IV load or a bolus, but then they switch to oral fairly quickly, um, and it runs the gamut on whether they do 400 twice a day or 400 three times a day or whether they um, do it daily. I have one physician that will not discharge a patient on anything higher than 400 milligrams daily. On the outpatient side, he definitely won't start more than 400 daily, and he may not even do it a full month um, or necessarily get to that 10 grams, where I have others that are very comfortable with doing um, BID for a week and then dropping it down to 400 um, daily and then 200. so that's kind of, at my institution, it is, it it runs the gamut um, so, of what they decide to do. Jessica, this is Craig. You, you bring up a good point since you work mostly in the ambulatory clinic. Do you ever have attendings that do outpatient loading, and, and do you have experience with that or a protocol yeah. for doing that? We don't have a protocol. It really is. We start it frequently on the outpatient side, um, and it usually just is physician-dependent. Um, a lot of times it's 400 milligrams daily. We'll do it for a month and then drop it down to 200. Um, that's more for simplicity and making sure that the patient doesn't continue 400. It's easy to write a script for 400 times one month and then a second script for 200 milligrams and continue. And, you know, we want them to return in one month, but when they go to the scheduler, um, they don't always come exactly as at a month, so we want them to drop to that 200 um, so that they're not continuing it or if they forget to follow up or something happens so they don't make that follow-up appointment. Um, but then some physicians will do one to two weeks of 400 milligrams twice a day and then have them drop it to 400 for another two weeks and then um, do 200. Some will just start if it's a, a small, frail lady, they'll do 200 milligrams 
um, and call it a day and just continue them on that. So it really, we, we feel very comfortable starting on an outpatient basis, but where we start, where we go from there, um, really is patient-dependent and physician-dependent. Jim and Zach, do you have similar experiences? Yeah, I think from the I think the the variation that you see in the doses is due to probably two factors. One, the setting that the amiodarone is being delivered in. So if it's inpatient, we tend to have um, you know more capabilities of of 24-hour monitoring for those patients. If it's in the outpatient setting, we start it and then we discharge it or you know release a patient back home. And so we tend to be maybe a little less aggressive in the outpatient setting. Uh, than in the inpatient setting. So we might see a more aggressive loading dose on the inpatient side. Um, the, other, the other difference in the loading dose that we might see is whether it be a life-threatening uh, arrhythmia, ventricular arrhythmia, uh, versus uh, something that like AFib, which is not, uh, doesn't have the same type of mortality with it. So we may see higher doses with ventricular arrhythmias up to you know, 150 milligrams IV or 300 milligrams IV, um, or if you're going to do it oral, even up to 1,600 milligrams in a day. But um, in an AFib setting, we may only see six to 800 milligrams per day um, that we would use in divided doses. And so, I think both the setting of of the of the uh, practitioner, as well as the level of urgency for the type of arrhythmia. I think correlates to why we see a diverse set of bolus recommendations in the literature. Yeah, you know, I, I would echo those comments as well. I spend a lot of my time in the uh, cardiac ICU, and um, you know, it's certainly an inexact science, but you know, we may have patients that require IV therapy for a longer period of time because of the, the acuity of their illness. Um, certainly, I think from a pharmacy perspective, it's important to help the, the team keep track of the, the total amount of amiodarone that the patients received. Um, we, we often see those types of questions. Um, and the other point I would just convey is the fact that, you know, when you're looking at the different formulations, you know, IV versus PO, you know, the bioavailability is around 50%. So, you know, one gram IV that we might give, you know, over the course of, you know, the first day or so is going to be equivalent to about two grams of PO. So, I, you know, I would just say to, to keep that in mind as you're calculating what the, the total uh, loading dose is actually at. Um, another question that we received is, what if a patient develops um, bradycardia during the loading dose? Would you stop the stop loading or slow down the loading schedule? Uh, yeah, I, I can take a shot at that one first. I think uh, you know we do see this from time to time. I mean, remember that you know amiodarone does have multi-channel blocking effects, and uh, particularly the IV formulation um, tends to to act more uh, as a beta blocker and calcium channel blocker relative to uh, you know, potassium channel blocker because it's going to bypass first pass metabolism. So bradycardia, you know, I would say is a little bit more common. So it would make sense to, you know, uh, at times either consider uh, considering lowering the dose or even temporarily withholding, um, or also look at other therapies that patients are on. If they're on concomitant, you know, beta blockade or uh, non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers or DIG, um, and I think those would be some of the things that I, I would uh, advise to, to look for when managing this type of complication. I might just add from the inpatient side too as well, um, again, keeping in mind uh, the mortality related to the underlying rhythm that, that, that you're treating. Um, in a ventricular patient, ventricular arrhythmia patient, uh, we may push the 
envelope a little bit more with bradycardia and allow bradycardia to, to be present in, in, a, in a ventricular arrhythmia patient. Whereas with an AFib patient, mortality isn't nearly as high, and so we might be a little bit more conservative in that point. But I do agree that we, we really have two different uh, approaches when it comes to changing the amnio, whether it be reducing the dose or uh, with, uh, withholding a dose um, if you're using it PO. Um, and then definitely looking at those other medications is important. So my question to you guys kind of related, you know, one of the other thoughts and components is, you know, the older versions, if you're, you're still making your own IV amiodarone versus using the premix product, the, you know, if you're making in your own, um, you know, hood or cabinet, you, you have the risk of the polysorbate 80, which can, can lead to hypotension or bradycardia. If you guys, if you use the premix product, do you notice a difference in that, or do you still have, have you noticed the same risk of bradycardia and hypotension that occurs? Uh, so in my institution, um, you can see we use the, uh, the, the premix version, um, the Nexterone, so it's polysorbate-free. And, um, but, you know, you know, we do still encounter this, this adverse effect from time to time. Um, you know, in my prior practice, we had used the, the polysorbate um, formulations. And at least anecdotally, I, I, I can say I've probably observed a little bit more um, uh, hypotension with that version, but it, it's really difficult to to kind of objectively capture that. I think the, the two adverse effects that you get concerned with are both hypotension and bradycardia. And, and again, my, just in my own personal experience, hypotension tends to be the, the, uh, the limiting step um, depending on the uh, formulation of the amiodarone. But bradycardia, AV blocks, you can also see those as well. Mm-hmm. On the outpatient side, we struggle with the bradycardia, especially in our heart failure patients where they're trying to, you know, push the beta blockers and then amiodarone limits them from doing that to get to target dosing and so forth. So we're always working with the heart failure team to try to find appropriate management. But again, it's back to, you know, whether it's what are we treating BT or AF and um, can we lower doses, eliminate it and so forth. And similarly, and, and I'm going to ask this question because it ties into the polysorbate 80 pieces, you know, they have the supposedly, you know, the acute transaminitis and, and you know, liver effects with amiodarone were also attributed at one point to the polysorbate 80. And someone was curious on, uh, through, the, through the social media questions, uh, you know, now that we have the aqueous amiodarone, the premix, is there any information on, on the incidence and prevalence of this phenomenon, or is it just essentially like an innocent bystander? Have we noticed a difference related to that, or have you guys seen anything anecdotally? Uh, I can't say that I have. Um, I know, you know, it's a great question. This comes up from, from time to time, and certainly when you, you know, look through the literature, you can find some, you know, scattered case reports, you know, on this um, acute, not just transaminitis, but even, um, you know, hepatotoxicity, it's certainly rare. Um, but, uh, you know, to my recollection, a lot of that, that data, you know, are, are pretty old, and I'm not aware of anything that looked specifically at, you know, the polysorbate-free versus the, uh, the older formulations that did contain that, um, that ingredient. I think the, the other thing um, to consider with this is that we, we have other medications that have historically been in polysorbate 80 and uh, or have been at least tried in polysorbate 80 in clinical trials, and, you know, they also um, have seen some liver toxicity with, um, you know, with formulations that contain that. So it's probably both a function of, um, 
the vehicle, um, but it's also probably a function of amiodarone itself uh, being uh, highly hepatic, hepatically eliminated and uh, fat soluble. Okay, I think um, moving on for another um, amiodarone question. Um, amiodarone and QTC pro prolongation, can you please put this issue to rest? Or perhaps it's a non-issue. Well, I think we, we can definitely, you know, say that amiodarone, you know, will prolong the QT. Um, uh, however, you know, we know that it's, you know, among the safest antirhythmics with respect to um, the risk for torsades. I mean, torsades has been described. It is very rare. Um, I, I've maybe seen one case in my career of, of torsades, so uh, certainly not improbable, but these are also likely patients that have other substrate or risk factors for torsades. Um, but, you know, I, I would just, you know, kind of say that, you know, based on the pharmacology of the drug, I mean, we certainly would expect it to, you know, to prolong the QTC based on what it does, uh, and we should still be mindful of that. Um, uh, you know, however, you know, like an ICU setting, of course, we're going to monitor the, you know, the, the EKG um, continuously, so we have a close eye on that, but I, I think we're also, you know, cognizant of other uh, medications and other risk factors that could contribute to torsades in patients that receive amiodarone. And if I'm not mistaken, the Q, with the QT for amio by itself, you know, where it's such a dirty drug, it's more less likely not to do substantial QT prolonging agents when it, it gets compounded. Is that correct? Like uh, compounded with other medications? You mean like an additive effect? Well, the, yeah, and I guess they're, you know, because it, I've I guess I've seen some literature that suggests that because, you know, it's it's not specific for the potassium channel that so, sometimes it does not, you know, amion on its, on its own right, you know, rarely causes substantial QT prolongation to, to lead to a torsades event. Yeah, I think that's fair, uh, Craig. That's certainly, um, you know, I, I think across the population that that's certainly fair. We know that there's, there are these certain patients that, perhaps have a you know, congenital long QT and, and they're more susceptible and might have an exaggerated response. But I think in general, yeah, you wouldn't expect a, you know, a, a significant prolongation of the, the QT or QTC. Interestingly enough, we had a lot of amiodarone questions. So we have another one, um, <laughs> believe it or not. So this is kind of a little bit different scenario. So we have a patient, you're, you're just curious, if you have a patient with a a rapid AF or AFib with pre-excitation, can you use IV amiodarone for that? Uh, if, you know, if you tried pocanamide and ibutilide or, or they're not available or, or they're not working, I mean, what's your experience with, with doing that in that particular setting? So are you, are you referring to a situation where, um, you know, there, there's concern for, like, uh, accessory pathway conduction? Correct. Along with, with AFib? Yeah, I mean, so in that situation, we usually think about, you know, like a Wolf-Parkinson-White uh, arrhythmia you know, where there's kind of the typical conduction through the AV node and then the conduction through the extranodal pathways. Um, and, and, I mean, generally, you know, that, that would be a situation where amiodarone, you know, could be used. Um, and I, I've certainly used it in that situation. Um, other alternatives, as you mentioned, you know, could include procainamide. Um, and with the amio, certainly, you know, you, know, you have the, the multi-channel effects. So the idea is that you're not selectively blocked, just blocking AV nodal conduction uh, so that you're not going to uh, selectively block that and then enhance conduction through uh, through the other pathways. So I, you know, I think in summary, amio is a you know a good choice and is, is um, well suited for that situation. 
anybody else have, have thoughts or, or agree or, or do something different? I would agree with exactly what he said and because of the different pathways to which um, amiodarone works, um, it's a good agent, especially for somebody with an accessory pathway. All right. So last amiodarone question, I think, if I recall, I don't see any more, Emma. So if you, if you have a patient with acute refractory ventricular tachycardia and they're already on amiodarone, you've got them on a pretty good dose and regimen of that, uh, either in the ICU or outpatient, what do you reach for next? Do you, do you reach for the lidocaine? Do you reach for procainamide? And of course, obviously, what, how do you transition them off? You know, if you have to use lidocaine or procainamide, what, what, what are your next steps and, and how are you managing that? Yeah, I, I can uh, I, I can speak to that. We uh, we actually had a patient uh, like this yesterday in, in uh, my CCU that they're concerned about refractory VT, VT storm. Uh, patient was already on amiodarone and there, there was a discussion about, you know, should they, what should they reach for next? You know, should it be lidocaine? Should it be procainamide? Um, you know, and I think um, either of those could be options. I think the thing that that I would say where you have to be really careful is with, you know, procainamide being a class 1A, it's going to also significantly prolong the QT uh, C interval. So that would be problematic with respect to cardiotoxicity and torsades. I think lidocaine, even even though, um, you know, that one can interact with the amiodarone, you know, being a class 1B, uh, it actually has a greater potential to, if anything, shorten the QTC interval and provides a different mechanism of action uh, through sodium channel blockade. So, you know, in uh, my practice, I would say lidocaine is generally our go-to, is our, our second-line choice. Um, and, you know, and it may be particularly helpful, you know, if it's in the setting of acute ischemia, you know, after an MI or, you know, in the, in the context of cardiac surgery, uh, to use that combination of amio and lidocaine. Uh, Procainamide, yeah, it's certainly still around IV. It's, um, you know, rarely used, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, a lot of clinicians just aren't that familiar with it anymore. I mean, I think if you were in a situation where they were already on both amio and lidocaine and you're really reaching at that point, um, you know, I think there is that, that additional option there, but that would be uh, unlikely. Yeah, I, I would, I think, um uh, I agree with the, the, you know, both of them are options uh, at that point. Um, and I think some some of the decision goes into what the underlying um, patient characteristics are and on which, which you choose, whether uh, the patient has renal disease or hepatic disease, um, if there's any underlying uh, presence of either of those. And, um, and then I also think that um, the transition from one to the other um, can be a little bit difficult as well, and so with you know amio's half life, um, it's you know nearly impossible to not get an overlap of amio plus the additional agent. Uh, so, you know, keeping a close eye on vitals and QTC interval um, is is really um, the the best you can really do in that scenario. And and I think a lot of times I you know we we often think of you know mixing two antiarrhythmics, you know, being analogous to crossing the streams on Ghostbusters, you just don't do it. But in some scenarios, you, in some scenarios, you just have to. And, and if it approaches that point of decision-making, you know, getting a consult with electrophysiology, um, and, and that, that can be also a helpful uh, piece of the puzzle in, in, just in deciding which agent to go to next. Well, and they might be able to also recommend more advanced therapies too beyond beyond that yeah. point. Um, yep. 
so if you do d go with lidocaine, for instance, are you, are you guys doing routine monitoring, you know, especially given the patient's characteristics, or how are you doing that, or, or what, you know, what, what's the, the status for you guys on this day and age with, with lidocaine monitoring if you go down that route? Yeah, so for us with, with lidocaine, I mean, we do have the capabilities to, um, you know, to check drug levels on site. I know some facilities, you know, you have to send it to an outside lab, and there's always that delay in turnaround, and the patient may not even be on lidocaine that long to warrant um, checking levels. So, I, you know, I'd say for us, unless the patient's going to be on therapy more than, you know, 12 to 24 hours, um, we're probably not looking to check levels routinely. Um, you know, certainly, you know, we would look for, uh, you know, signals of, of neurotoxicity due to the lipophilicity, you know, alteration in mental status, uh, tremors, things like that. I think the other uh, area where uh, levels would be more helpful, however, is, you know, thinking about the ICU patient that's on lidocaine, you know, they're intubated, they're sedated, and then you really can't assess them neurologically um, that well for potential accumulation. So that, that would be, um, you know, a niche, I think, where the, the levels would be uh, very helpful. And, and I know at our institution, lidocaine isn't available in-house, and so it's a send-out lab, which is 24-hour return, um, and so that also adds a, a bit of, um, um, you know, a twist to, to how we monitor it. And um, in, in the past, I know that when we've tried to target or when we've had a patient who's transitioned from one agent to another, keeping in mind that the lidocaine levels of, you know, between one and a half to maybe five um, and no greater than six for um, for um, for the lidocaine levels, we've tried to shoot more at a lower level um, when they're transitioning from one agent to another uh, just to reduce the potential for um, adverse effects. And so, um, you know, that might be more easily accomplished in an institution where turnaround time is a little bit quicker. Um, and if it's a send out lab, that then becomes another um, difficult uh, obstacle uh, in the management of these patients. Very good, very good. So um, one of the questions that we um, have received is, should we use bridging in the anticoagulation of AF patients with the CHAD FAST score of two to six or not? A very hot topic. Um, you know, and I think especially in light of the BRIDGE trial that, you know, that looked at these patients with uh, AF that were essentially, you know, lower to intermediate risk. Um, you know, I believe the average, you know, CHAS-2 score was around um, 2. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, a lot of debate these days. I actually got a, a question um, just this week about a couple of patients that were sort of in that range, you know, CHAS-2-VASC of, you know, 3 to 4, um, you know, has blood that was still on the, the intermediate to high-risk side. Uh, and, and, you know, what do we do? Um, so for me, you know, I, looking back at kind of the recent, um, you know, ACC document um, that talks about periprocedural management was very helpful. And, and um, this past month they, they launched an app for that too, um, which was the first time I'd used this and uh, found that helpful as well. And it, it turned out that, you know, kind of going through that pathway, we ended up advising against bridging uh, for the one patient, because the, you know, even though the chest 2 vas score was, I think, around 4, the Hasbillet score was around 3, and the patient had uh, CKD, and um, there, was, there was more concern for bleeding. I think in the other patient, um, even though the chest 2 vasc um, was similar, we ended up proceeding with bridging just because it was more of a, of a judgment call patient had 
a history of recurring VTE, even though it wasn't recent. So there's certainly, a, you know, a lot of factors that need to be addressed. Jim, were those patients bridging to Coumadin or to uh, something different? No, they, they, these were actually patients that were um, they were on uh, warfarin, and um, they they were talking about the the question really had to do with, you know, should we bridge with anoxaparin for these patients um, that were mm -hmm. coming in, I believe, for, for different procedures like right heart cath. Right. On, on the outpatient side, for patients with um, AFib, we're generally, um, for a large majority of patients these days, starting them on the NOx or DOx and typically then aren't bridging um, and just initiating therapy um, and going from there. There's a small percentage of patients that um, we do start on warfarin because of looking at them, their individualized care, um, insurance, and whatnot. And then, then you know, we're, we're assessing their, their chest mask and deciding what um, needs to be done. Um, higher CHAD vests, I think the physicians are still pushing um, for us to bridge, um, but we're definitely individualizing that care and um, looking outside the CHAD vest too of, you know, what is what is their fall risk looking at, has blood and um, so forth, and then digesting it from there. But a large majority are now on the NOx or DOx, and so um, we, we aren't bridging. Okay. So I'm going to kind of expand on this just out of interest and kind of to make it a little timely based on some data that was released at the American College of Cardiology meeting. So what are you guys doing in these patients that are, are going to uh, an EP procedure, uh, whether it be ablation, et cetera? Are you guys just, is your institution moving more towards keeping these patients on their therapy versus stopping? Uh, are they being more, more self-selective? Like, for instance, you know, some of our, our providers will – only keep them on, continued on warfarin, but they will stop them and bridge them or, or, or switch them over if they're on, or, or actually want nothing if they're on a NOAC or a DOAC, uh, however you want you, you, to your, your, your abbreviations. Um, so what, what, how are you guys handling that? Because, you know, we had some data with the Bigatran come out at the ACC meeting. You know, what, what, what is the, the pulse or what are people doing? REP physicians are um, definitely with warfarin, keeping them on. Um, the warfarin during the procedure, and then um, it varies between physicians too. Again, as to whether they want them to stop the um, the NOAC, um, but many of them are now definitely moving towards, or there is a movement towards keeping them on um, therapy during um, the ablation. Yeah, I'd say our, this is Jim. I'd say our practice is is pretty similar. Um, you know, if they're on warfarin, we'll, we'll typically continue that. We we really are not bridging um, at all in these patients, just because we know that you know the risk for you know pocket hematomas, you know, with the defibrillator placements, um, you know, the bleeds with those are pretty high. Um, I can't say we use a lot of dabigatran at this point. Um, I know you'd referenced the the ACC data that compared the dabigatran versus uh, warfarin continuation, uh, but but again, in general, I'd say that um, we're uh, not uh, bridging in that setting. Zach, any any yeah. insight from your institution? Yeah, um, I think uh, with our um, current um, use of NOACs, I, I don't think um, the Bigatran, you know, the Bigatran data specifically applies to us because we, you know, we don't use that one specifically. But I think the the message that our practitioners are are using is that uh, um, you know we are using it 
uh, are are no acts of choice throughout the procedure. Um, and similar to like Coumadin, we aren't um, bridging through the procedure or anything like that. So um, we we've kind of you know stretched the data um, to apply it to the NOACs that we have available to us. Uh, but um, but we we are not bridging through the cardio uh, through the cardio version procedure. Very good. Yeah. So I was going to kind of ask this this one. Now I'll just ask. This wasn't specifically from our audience. Uh, but, you know, kind of similarly of data released at ACC, they showed the the extended use of rivaroxaban uh, in patients with VTE. What, I feel like, you know, a lot of people are slow to, to adopt this practice of, of extended use therapy um, in some instances. What are, what are you guys finding that you guys are doing at your institution? I, this is Jim. I think for us it's still, uh, still very um, uh, dependent upon the, Prescribing physician, I think our practice is variable overall. You know, once they're kind of beyond that six to twelve month time frame. Um, yeah, I mean that data is interesting because we see that the you know the risk of recurrent VTE certainly persists. You know, I, I think to the tune of around ten percent or so, if I'm not mistaken. But um, I, I think if at if at all, um, we might have our practitioners, you know, just advising patients to continue to take aspirin. I don't. I can't say I see a lot of you know more routine you know oral anticoagulation um, for for extended um, treatment of VTE uh, in this setting and you know that data from ACC is pretty interesting. Um, I, I I did see that they again were studying the kind of the very low dose rivaroxaban, which um, you know it'll be interesting you know if we ever see that dose formulation actually approved here and available for us for use. We, we typically, um, at, at our institution, um, typically, you know, we're using about a 12-month a um, period where at, at that point we're making some big decisions as to whether or not that, that to, to extend it or not. But generally speaking, you know, our the data that we just saw um, uh, uh, come out, the Einstein choice data, um, you know, it's it's so new. I'm not sure it's influenced um, practice at this point, but um, I, you know, I think it's it's interesting in that, you know, we often think that we've treated the problem, and at 12 months uh, or six to 12 months, we've treated it, and the problem um, has disappeared and is, and is no longer an issue for the patient. But um, it, there's clearly still risk that persists, and like all anticoagulation questions, it really comes down to managing that fine balance between, you know, preventing a clot and preventing a bleed or, or um, not, you know, um, avoiding a bleed. So um, I think, you know, up to this point, the six to 12 month window has is, is sort of been our um, sweet spot to where we, we would normally manage a patient with VTE. But there is definitely, um, you know, in, in the cardiology anticoagulation community, there's definitely um, some discussion around even patients who uh, don't have um, a clear uh, risk factor that prompted uh, a DVT event or a PE event that, you know, we just, uh, the problem there is we just haven't identified what actually prompted it. So, um, you know, when we say that a patient had a risk factor and, or they had um, a transient risk factor or an unknown risk factor, um, treating those patients differently than someone who has a clear risk factor 
doesn't really at this point seem um, like a logical choice because I think it, what it comes down to is we just didn't find what risk factor prompted their DVT or P, or we just don't know what other risk factors are out there. Um, and so I think maybe what we'll lean towards in the future is, you know, not differentiating based on is it a transient risk factor or is there not a transient risk factor present, but rather sort of a standard of care for, for most patients if they've experienced a single event or multiple events. And then specifically with cancer, those patients are going to be at high risk for a prolonged period of time, and those are the ones that we typically see uh, um, have uh, more of a longitudinal maintenance therapy that gets extended past that 12-month window. And then the nice thing about the cancer data is there's a little bit of data out now, but there's definitely going to be more coming down the line to help us guide, guide those decisions, especially with the newer agents. Yeah, absolutely. So, so using renolazine for arrhythmias or atrial fibrillation, can you speak about that or, or your thoughts regarding that? I know there's been several instances or reports and, and data coming out in the past couple of years with it. And obviously, early signals in the Merlin trial. Yeah, I, th I think um, you know Renolazine's had a pretty interesting history. Um, you know, we—I feel like every time I go to one of these national meetings, you know, there's—you know—you learn about newer uh, studies that are ongoing with Renolazine um, outside of Angina, and um, you know, certainly has really interesting pharmacologic properties that you know would make you think that it, you know it could confer some uh, you know antiarrhythmic uh, activity. Um, that could be efficacious. Um, yeah, I know when it was first approved, there was you know a lot of chatter about well the fact that it, it could prolong Q, you know QTC and you know, we got to be careful about you know uh, patient selection and dosing for that. But it's, it certainly would appear that despite that, that it, it does have um, some antiarrhythmic uh, properties that would make it useful in situations like AFib or uh, or VT. Um, I, I can't say that I've I've seen it used, you know, clinically off-label where, you know, the team was maybe thinking about using it for that purpose. Um, so I, I don't have any, um, you know, kind of direct um, experience to impart other than to say that, you know, these studies seem to be all ongoing and um, sort of lots of different potential uses that are out there and we'll kind of see what, what unfolds with it. I would echo that. You know, our physicians talk about it, but we talk about it. Nobody's actually, that I've seen, used it in practice for um, its antiarrhythmic um, sort of effects. It's more talk about the theoretical um, mechanism by which it, it could exert its effects, but um, not been utilized in practice um, in that sort of capacity. Good. What's the role or utility, or have you guys seen or anyone used Evabradine in inotrope-dependent patients who develop tachycardias? We were actually going to start that on um, a patient that we just, um, we couldn't, they just had um, science tech cardia or inappropriate science tech cardia and we could not control them and um, with other means and we really thought that this would be a good option for them. Unfortunately, we weren't able to um, initiate it because of insurance reasons, um, but definitely something that our physician was willing to try um, since it was, you know, um, inappropriate sinus tachycardia and feeling that, you know, the uh, how Evabradine um, affects the funny current um, from the sinus nodes. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. I, I, this might be the first time I've kind of heard about that potential use, you know, for patients that were on inotropes. I think certainly for, you know, things like, you know, you mentioned inappropriate sinus tachycardia, I mean, it would make sense that it could have a role there. Um, 
I mean, we, you know, we have it on our formulary with restrictions um, for, um, you know, for heart failure, um, but I, I can't say I've seen it used yet. I think, you know, we've certainly, um, you know, I, th I think been challenged to figure out what the exact niche is, you know, where it fits, you know, if they truly, you know, can't tolerate higher doses of beta blockers, um, you know, and, and certainly the cost is the biggest issue, so uh, I, I can't say I've, I've had any, um, you know, uh, experience with, you know, sort of the inotropic uh, dependent patient, you know, with tachycardias. I think that one of the interesting things with that will be whether the um, heart heart rate effects that were seen in the shift trial will be um, consistent in a, you know, I'm going to say, quote, unquote, healthy sinus tachycardic patient. Um, you know, I think we in the shift trial, there was about a 10 beat per minute reduction. Um, and so whether or not that same level of, of reduction in heart rate is achieved in a in a, in a non-cardiomyopathy uh, patient, uh, that I think would be something that I think the literature would have to address. Um, and, you know, mechanistically, it seems like it would be a, you know, another good possible agent. But I think then, um, you know, similar to what Jessica mentioned, that we run into then problems with insurance coverage and things like that for patients who don't have the um, FDA-approved indication for the drug. And so, uh, cost eventually then drives some decision making there. So kind of shifting gears a little bit as well. So you have a patient on you're you're trying to start or, or initiate dofetilide, and they're V paced. So you know what are some recommended strategies to kind of monitor that? Are you guys using the the JTC? Are you using QTC? Are you just depending on what the EP is recommending, how are you guys working through that that process? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we we use quite a bit of dofetilide at, at my institution um, and, and certainly have, have a fair amount of these patients that, you know, that are V-paced. Um, I, I can't say, like, across the board, you know, the, the EP physicians are, are using the JT interval. I think that, that makes the most sense. Um, you know, I think beyond that, we know that there's sort of that upper upper threshold um, that that can be applied. Like when you look through the label, um, you know, for patients like that that would have, you know, uh, conduction abnormality as a result of the uh, the V pacing situation. So, um, you know, I mean, from a pharmacy perspective, you know, we do take a, a close look at these, and we're in touch with our prescribers, and um, you know, we might initiate that type, you know, that question with with the physician just to make sure that, you know, they're okay with the current dosing. But uh, I, I'd say it's been very much, um, you know, prescriber specific, but with some using JT intervals and, and others not. We definitely don't have a, con we definitely don't have a consistent approach with this, but I do see both of those used in practice. And I really, um, I, I don't know if I would be familiar enough with the literature to be able to make an educated statement here regarding which would be better. Uh, but I, but we do see decisions made using both approaches. So the question here is kind of related to Sotolol. I mean, what are your thoughts or, or the limited data or the use of Sotolol in heart failure patients who are on an ICD that are having inappropriate shock? So, I, you know, you've seen some small bodies of evidence of using it for inappropriate shocks. What are, what are your guys' thoughts on this, or, or have you guys been using it? Because you know, a lot of people get 
you know, caught up in, you know, oh, we shouldn't use soda in heart failure patients, but then there's some data that suggests using it in this, this particular setting. Yeah, this is Jim. I mean, we don't use a lot of soda in our program for heart failure. As you mentioned, Craig, it, it is controversial. It's, I mean, for heart failure, you know, with, with the reduced DF, certainly, you know, within the guidelines, um, soda has not been, at least the current soda formulation, the, the racemic mixture has not been uh, adequately studied in those patients, and there's um, very old data with with the D-sodalol that showed worse outcomes um, in patients with structural heart disease. Um, so, yeah, I, I, we don't use it for that purpose. Um, if anything, we, we might use it for, you know, for AFib. Um, but, you know, if we had this type of patient you described that had, you know, inappropriate ICD firing, um, our go-to agent more than likely would be, you know, a low dose of amiodarone just to, you know, with the intent on increasing the defibrillation threshold. So, for example, you know, 200 milligrams once a day. Our practice is the same. We we do not use Sotolol in that um, sort of a patient setting. Um, amiodarone is our go-to for those patients as well. Very good. I think that's all of our questions, Emma. So, thank you all um, so much. Thank you for listening to another ACCP podcast episode. Our theme music is called Rocket Power and is licensed by Creative Commons. Please take a moment to recommend this podcast and subscribe via iTunes so that you'll get notified of when our next episode will be released.